Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. And today, we bring you a story about a pioneer who broke several color barriers. His name was Don Barksdale. He was the first African-American player to be named an All-American in college, He was the first African-American to play on Team USA at the Olympics, and he was also the first African-American player to make an NBA All-Star game in 1953. Now, he was not the first black player to play in the NBA. That honor belongs to Chuck Cooper, but Barksdale was the first one to reach the All-Star game. Barksdale has an unusual road to the NBA, but let us go back to the beginning of his story. He was born on March 31, 1923 in Oakland, California. His father, Argy, was a Pullman porter. Now, back before America switched to traveling long distances by airplane, most Americans traveled by train. Pullman was the name in train passenger cars. The Pullman had to send university players who were the best amateurs that the United States had. Meanwhile, a country like Italy could send an entire team of players in their late 20s who have played professionally in the Italian League for 10 seasons. For nearly every Olympics, we had to send players who, in some cases, were literal teenagers against grown men from other countries. But honestly, that did not really hurt the United States. Going into the 1984 Olympics, the United States had won men's basketball gold in eight of the nine Olympics in which the team had played. The same was expected in 1984. The American team would be the favorites. In addition to sending university players to the Olympics, the American team always chose a university coach to lead the squad. This was for two simple reasons. University coaches could more easily relate to university players since they both came from the same level of competition. Also, basketball at the university level was more similar to the international rules than the NBA was. Today, the NBA and FIBA actually work together to gradually bring the NBA rules and the international rules closer together. You can see an obvious change in the court itself. FIBA decided to change the international lane from that trapezoid shape to the same size as the NBA. This is why when you watch the most recent Olympics in Tokyo, the game looked a lot more like the NBA than ever before. So back in 1984, Team USA selected Bobby Knight from Indiana University to lead the American squad in the Los Angeles games. Out of deference to Coach Knight, the tryouts for the Olympics were held on campus at Indiana University. That way, Coach Knight would not have to travel anywhere for the tryouts and could go home to his own house every night. The selection was a bit of a surprise. Knight had always wanted to coach the Olympic team. It was a dream of his to coach the Olympics and annihilate the Soviets. Often, Team USA would select a coach to lead the team in the Pan Am Games as a trial run. If the coach performed well, he might then get a chance to coach at the Olympics. 
Knight had coached Team USA at the Pan Am Games in 1979 and in a very heated altercation got himself arrested in Puerto Rico where the games were being held. The incident occurred during a practice session when a Puerto Rican police officer came asking questions but did so in a very rude manner. He was practically begging for Knight to do something. Well, Knight did and he assaulted the officer resulting in Knight's arrest. At the time, he felt that he had just thrown away any opportunity to ever coach the Olympic team. But in 1982, the committee at Team USA narrowed down their selection to two coaches, Bob Knight from Indiana University or John Thompson from Georgetown University. It took three ballots before Knight was selected. At the tryouts, Coach Knight was intense about the whole matter. He was very loyal to Coach Hank Iba, who coached the Olympic team three times in 1964, 1968, and 1972. That last one was when the Soviet team was given three chances to make a last second shot to defeat the American team for gold. Many blame Coach Iba for his conservative style that allowed the Russians to be in a position to make a last second shot. But most blame the referees who gave the Russians three chances to shoot the last shot even though they violated a number of rules in doing so. Coach Knight wanted to avenge Coach Iba for 1972. He wanted revenge against the Soviets in 1984. In fact, he was preparing to take on the Soviets for the gold medal game. He selected the players and built a team specifically to defeat the Soviet team. That was his goal. But one thing that Knight could not control was which countries would even show up in 1984. The Soviets decided to boycott the Olympics in 1984 since it was being held on American soil, which was payback for the Americans boycotting the Olympics in 1980 when the games were held on Soviet soil. Knight wanted revenge badly, but it was not to be. Without the Soviets or any other Eastern Bloc nations in attendance, the most serious competition that the Americans would have was Spain, West Germany, or Canada. Knight put pressure on himself to make sure that he did not mess this up. He would not be able to live it down if the team lost to any of those countries or just lost, period. Uh, this is a good place to take a break, and I'll be right back with the actual tryouts and discuss the future Hall of Famers that were cut from that team. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Welcome back to the show, and let us continue with the story of the players who were cut from the 1984 Olympic team. To do that, I have to take you back to April of 1984. The tryouts began with around 100 players during a very rainy week in Bloomington, Indiana. Thankfully, basketball is an indoor sport, so the weather was not an issue. True to Knight's style, he put the players through three grueling training sessions each day. The players were purposely pushed to their physical limits. Some players did not make it until the end of the week. Once Knight felt that a player was definitely not going to make it, he ended the player's misery and cut him. One of the cuts was the previously mentioned Charles Barkley. That was a cut that confused even the other players. Barkley dominated the scrimmages. He was clearly one of the 10 best players at the tryout, definitely good enough to make the team. But if you know anything about Bobby Knight, is that he ran his team at Indiana like a drill sergeant. It was his way or the highway, without exception. And Barkley did not always follow Knight's instructions. He liked to do things his way, which is what made him such a great NBA player and a great analyst for TNT. But that same attitude was not going to work when playing for Bobby Knight. So Barkley was gone. Knight wanted soldiers that would do what they were told when they were told. Even today, Barkley admits that he would have not liked playing for Coach Knight. Barkley does not respond well to military-style coaching. 
Carl Malone was also cut from the tryouts. Now that one is not quite as impactful as Barkley. Malone was still a year away from entering the NBA and was not quite as polished as he would become over the course of the 1980s. But still, even at the time, it would have been difficult to say that Malone was not better than at least one player who did make the team, like Jeff Turner. No offense to Turner, really. Coach Knight could have gone with either of them. In any case, I will not make too much of a fuss over this one. The same was true of John Stockton. While Stockton was leaving Gonzaga and about to enter his rookie year in the NBA, he was not the John Stockton that would become the NBA's all-time assist leader. Knight thought he was too small, which was funny because Stockton is the same height as Steve Alford, who did make the team. But Alford had an advantage in that he already played for Knight at Indiana University. Alford was a guy that Knight already trusted. So this cut is not too controversial. Stockton would not reach his full potential until about his third season in the NBA. So Stockton and Malone were cuts that probably made sense at the time, but in hindsight seemed short-sighted. But cutting Barkley had nothing to do with Barkley's ability or talent. He was definitely one of the top 10 players at the tryout. He was just too difficult for Knight to control. Now here are some players that were selected. The aforementioned Jeff Turner and John Konkak. Unless you were a serious NBA fan, you probably do not remember either of these two players. Both would have decent NBA careers primarily as role players, but they are still NBA players, which means that they were two of the 300 best players in the world at the time. But most importantly, they listened to Coach Knight and always did exactly what he said with 100% effort. Even with those unusual selections, the team was still loaded with talent. They had Michael Jordan, Patrick Ewing, Chris Mullen, Wayman Tisdale, Sam Perkins, and Alvin Robertson, a lockdown defender. They were loaded with talent. And once the team was selected, they went on a nine-game exhibition tour to get ready for the Olympics. All of the exhibition games were against a team of NBA All-Stars, and the college kids destroyed them in nearly every single game. The Olympics were practically a cakewalk by comparison. They cruised through their five preliminary games without any real challenge. In the elimination round, they defeated West Germany by 11, then destroyed Canada by 19 in the semifinals, and that left them with Spain in the gold medal game. The coach had a big speech ready for the gold medal game, but just as he was about to deliver it, he noticed a note taped to the chalkboard. It was written by Michael Jordan, and it said, Coach, there is no way we lose this game. Knight ditched the speech, looked at his team with steely eyes, and simply said, let's go play. He knew his team was ready. The game was effectively over after about five minutes. The Americans annihilated the Spaniards 101 to 68. When the game was over, his first thought was for coach Hank Iba, who was there at Knight's insistence. The players tried to lift Knight onto their shoulders, but he told the players that Iba gets the first ride. The players obeyed their instructions and lifted coach Iba on their shoulders and took him around the court for one lap. And then they lifted Knight on their shoulders and then took him around the court as well. For Barkley, Malone, and Stockton, they had to watch the game on TV with the feeling that they all should have made the team. Based on how the rules were written at the time, they all figured that their only opportunity to ever play in the Olympics was over. But of course, we all know that all three of those players were selected eight years later for the Olympic team once NBA players were allowed to participate. The Dream Team absolutely went nuclear on the rest of the world, winning their games by an average of 44 points. So in the end, they did get their gold medals. Well. That does it for today. Join us next time when we share the story of the college recruitment of Moses Malone 
and the simultaneous recruitment by the ABA, which made Malone the first high school player to go directly to the pros. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts, as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care, and see you soon. And the second bottle was for the black players. In this case, the trainer only brought out one bottle. The entire place went dead silent as everybody wanted to see what would happen with that bottle. Three white players took turns drinking from the bottle before it was passed to Barksdale. Normally in this situation, a black player would have refused to drink from the bottle so as not to offend the white fans. But Barksdale did not care. He took a drink just like all the other guys did. But now was the real moment of truth. Barksdale passed the bottle to the next guy, Gordon Carpenter. What would Carpenter do? A black player had just taken a drink from the bottle. Well, Carpenter took the bottle without hesitation and drank from it just like everybody else did. The tension in the entire place just melted away. Barksdale turned to Carpenter and thanked him for the gesture. And Carpenter said, quote, Never a doubt, Barks. Unquote. It's crazy how little things like this could become a big deal, but not on this day. Just as a side note, when they took the tour to Oklahoma to play in front of the Phillips 66ers fans, that became the first time an integrated team played a game in any sport in the state of Oklahoma. It seems like that everywhere he went, Barksdale was breaking a color barrier. Anyway, it was a very successful tour, and they raised a lot of money for the team, and they had all of their expenses covered to go to London. So off they went, and during pool play, they easily defeated Switzerland, Czechoslovakia, Argentina, Egypt, and Peru. They then moved on to the elimination round with a perfect record. They defeated Uruguay in the quarterfinals by a score of 63-28. to Then they defeated Mexico in the semifinals 71-40. to and then they moved on to the final game where they won the gold medal by beating France 65-21. to That is how he became the first black player from any country to win an Olympic gold medal in basketball. He was the third leading scorer on the team, but easily the best overall player, as he also was a dominant player on the rebound. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. 
1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.